Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And also me, Ian Morris. And as last week, Text Message is now brought to you by you, this is our. We're completing our first full week of being supported by Patreons, uh, patrons at patreon.com forward slash UK Tech. If you're a patron, then this is your extended cut of this week's show. And if you're not yet a patron but would like to get our extended cuts and my weekly columns and, and various other exclusive extras, go to patreon.com slash UK Tech to find out how. And thank you to everyone who has started pledging um, even just over a pound a week. Um, for us and uh, to help keep us going it means uh, it means the world I, I think I've been humbled I have to say I've been I didn't know how this would go in, in the in the early days you know it could be one of those things where you do and you get just a handful of people and it's the support has been just incredible I've never felt so motivated by anything I've done in my in my spare time on a Sunday in my entire life than than the last week has made me feel well, I, 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 I'm also quite... I feel like we had... Even before we sort of did Patreon, I sort of feel like we had established a, a routine that sort of was rewarding in its own way, even without people contributing. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have sort of raised the issue of Patreon had it not been... Well, I, I didn't anyway, because you did. But um, had it not been for that survey, I don't... I, well, I would never have occurred to me. But, but obviously it's been proven that people want to support good podcasts i mean i hope that's why they're supporting it i mean i can't think of another reason you wouldn't want to support bad podcasts would you no ideally not no and um so thank you to everybody who has pledged we've got a a bunch of exclusives uh, over there for anybody who hasn't yet pledged and isn't supporting us uh, on patreon but would like to um there's three tiers um, and the very basic tier you get access to the new version the new format longer format of our show every single week on a new alternative feed so please do check that out and consider supporting us um (laughs) and watch our video that we've that we've made or that i i've made ian wasn't in it my cat was in it but ian was not i wasn't invited um the the uh, the patreons will also get bonus uh clips of me blowing my nose probably during this episode uh it's unlikely because (laughs) they will be filtered out uh out of consideration uh, but you can go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash uk tech uh, we'll keep our intros about patreon shorter in future episodes but really um this is this is very exciting for us so forgive us the extra couple of minutes of going into detail there and thank you to everybody who has pledged this week i was going to read out names and frankly there are too many of you to read out in a single breath um but thank you you know exactly who you are and um it means the world so Thank you. Let's get into the news, shall we, Ian, before we get into a special feature that we've got for everybody later on in the show that concerns certain fashion 
brand and a certain technical experiment that took place this week. Just leave that little tease there. But we're going to start by talking about EE, mobile network EE, that is, which is planning to deploy blimp-like balloons over rural (laughs) areas of the UK to increase the capacity of its 4G network when local network towers are overloaded, such as, you know, during music festivals. The FT reported this week that EE is approaching a solution like this because it's just so damn hard to build ground-based network infrastructure in some parts of the country. Or, perhaps, my interpretation rather, it's hard to justify building them when they get so little demand for most of the year. So the company is going to develop this fleet of balloons over the next three years. They're going to hover about 150 feet over the ground and can deliver a mobile signal over an area about four kilometers. The The balloons themselves are actually going to connect to EE's network via satellite. The company said in the past it would actually like to um, use this as a solution more permanently to provide 4G to rural areas. But currently, regulatory hurdles are still too high to leap uh, to make that an issue. For example, what happens if a plane hits one Uh, or, you know, maybe a farmer might shoot one? These are all very real issues that need to be thought about. Uh, and there's also, I think, the, the high chance that they're going to be covered in obnoxious branding. So that needs to be <laughs> that needs to be worked on too. But I think this is a really interesting solution to a problem um, as a temporary deployment during times of high load or even during emergency situations as well. You know, it's not just consumer-facing stuff like festivals and sporting events that this could be used from. If uh, if there's weather or vandalism or problems caused by other natural disasters or um, you know, the, the variety of disasters that do befall uh, a telecoms infrastructure, then this sort of thing could be deployed for that um, and, and deployed perhaps in on mass uh, in a few years time in. Yeah, I mean, I can sort of see the value. I mean, if you've ever been to like a busy, a busy event, like a, a live outdoor concert or something like that, you know, the, uh, the mobile stru- infrastructure really struggles to cope with that kind of stuff. So having these little pop ups, I mean, obviously not pop-ups, but, you know, these little things that you can put in the air to maybe fill in some extra capacity or or just if, if there's something happening at, in a place where there wouldn't usually be, uh, you know, I could see like film crews and stuff like that making quite heavy use of this kind of thing, you know, rent a balloon from EE so that the crew all has access to mobile coverage or stuff like that uh, would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That'd be amazing. I could totally see that happening if yeah. they if they develop that. I mean, it's not the first time we've seen something like this. I mean, on a global level, there are a couple of things that immediately jumped out to me when I saw this story. The first one was Google's Project Loon or Google X's project to put a network of these like high altitude balloons that can deliver 4G like mobile connectivity despite being that high to really remote parts of the planet with limited network coverage normally like say uh, I've seen Peru mentioned Sri Lanka New Zealand South Africa and these are flying much much higher than EEs though uh, they're about 65,000 feet versus EEs 150 feet so it's a rem- you know a radical different radically different approach um and google's are are basically permanent networks fleets of balloons whereas ee's are temporary deployments uh, to cover a very specific geographic area but the similarities are certainly there also i mean I, I sort of feel like we might start to see a little bit more of this kind of stuff happen in the future um because ultimately you you could use these sort of blimps as a way to fill in demand just in general like to give certain areas extra capacity if you if you've got drones up in the air that can just fly around on solar power then you know you could move the whole network around couldn't you i mean it sort of sounds a bit futuristic and pointless in a way but at the same time you know 
say rush hour in London, you know, if he could bring in some extra stuff running on different frequencies, uh, you know, might might make things better. And then those b- balloons can go off and do something else, you know, recharge or whatever. And yeah. Um, but you can let us know what you think by sending us a message to podcast at natelangson.com or tweeting us at text message pod. Let us know what you think to the idea of flying mobile networks over your head. Well, we've talked about threat already uh, on the podcast, Ian. Uh, now I want to talk about self-driving cars because a bill is making its way through Parliament right now uh, that concerns how insurance is going to be dealt with in such an event that the self-driving cars self-crash themselves. Uh-huh. Um, Essentially, the bill that has been published this week, or is, is, is in discussion this week, is called the Vehicle Technology and Aviation Bill. And it focuses on the fact that self-driving cars on British roads must offer protection, or rather the insurance for those cars must offer protection for times when the driver is in control and when the, and when the vehicle is in control. This is according to a report I saw initially on the BBC. MPs basically want to make sure that victims of accidents are able to claim, or easily claim, compensation if a collision occurs when the car is in control of movement. Um, so this was first introduced to the House of Commons, the, the bill. Uh, it got its first reading on the 22nd of February. And the MPs will consider, um, well, they'll do another reading uh, in about a week or so, 6th of March, I believe it is. It would still have to go through a whole load of rounds of um, readings and, and things at the Commons and then the House of Lords and then amendments that inevitably get tabled and then royal assent and so on and so forth, as all of these things do. Um, But the fact is, we've been able to at least learn where MPs' heads are at in terms of how insurance for self-driving cars will be handled. Now, there's a couple of interesting pairs of exemptions in addition to the the, the main meat of this, which is that, you know, insurance companies will have to pay attention to what happens if a car is in control and maybe insurance companies will have to claim from the car makers if they do have to pay out in those circumstances but there are a couple of ways it's been tabled that they would not have to pay out one of them is if a user has and i'm going to read this verbatim from the the bill posted to the government's uh, online portal uh, in fact, I'll read the whole thing verbatim. An insurance policy in respect of an automated vehicle may exclude or limit the insurer's liability for damage suffered by an insured person arriving from an accident occurring as the direct result of A, alterations to the vehicle's operating system made by the insured person or with their knowledge, or B, failure to install software updates to the vehicle's operating system that the insured person is required under the policy to install or to have installed. And the reason I think this is so interesting is this basically says you will not be able to mod or hack or in any way modify the software on your car if you want to maintain your ability to be insured. And since you need insurance legally, this almost feels like a legal limit on doing any kind of modification or hacking to your car, um, which I think could, down the line be disappointing for people who do want to mod uh, and hack their cars because we live in a time where modding and hacking and alteration is uh, is strongly encouraged across a variety of systems what do you reckon Ian? yeah so here's my thing right so i i i can understand the need to do this but what i'm thinking is that when you're if you're going to build a self-driving car um and and you um you want to give people some flexibility in what they do for, for example like it is legal for you to 
modify your existing car, even if doing so might make it slightly less safe. So what I was thinking was, you know, what about if there was a way to make sure that self-driving cars all had a set of sort of core functions that couldn't be tampered with? So the things that relate to the safety of the vehicle. But if, if there were other things around it that were more open that you would be able to tweak that wouldn't actually have an impact on the safety of the vehicle itself i'm kind of thinking like asimov's you know robotic rules really you know the laws of robotics which are you know quite well known by everyone but if that was something that you could somehow build into each car that couldn't be adjusted but would keep them safe but then everything else was open for fiddling around that that might work quite well Honestly, though, do you need do you need to fiddle around with a car? Like most of them come with so many customization options from the factory, you really don't need to do a huge amount to them. You never know. I mean, it might not necessarily be the user. It may well be that down the line, there are a multitude of companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and everyone who offer the integration of one of their services with the self-driving service of a car. I mean, we talked about that as recently as from CES when you reported about the BMW self-driving car. Now, if if there's something in British law that in some way prohibits you from, from modifying your system in any way, then, as we know, insurance companies love to worm their way out of payouts based on technicalities. What if you linking your car's service up to some API or some system offered by a third party, they could say, well, look, you linked this up to whatever system, and, well, we reckon that's in violation of the policy. So, yeah, we're not going to pay out for your written-off, very expensive electric vehicle. My personal feeling is that self-driving cars are going to improve safety by so much that actually this won't be an issue. Because self-driving cars can communicate with each other. They can communicate with traffic lights. They can communicate with, you know, uh, I don't know, people's mobile phones so that it's impossible to get run over by a self-driving car. In about 20 years' time, the accident rate for cars will have plummeted to the point where people will be genuinely shocked by how many people die in car crashes at the moment, I think. Well, if you have opinions on that, then let us know podcast at nateslangson.com. We'll keep our eye on this and get back to you when we hear more about what happens at the second reading of this bill. This week was London Fashion Week. Now, I took an interest in this for two unusual reasons. Uh, Reason the first, my fiancée Kate has been binge-watching about nine years' worth of the US fashion competition Project Runway, so catwalks and designers and models have been burnt into the back of my brain now for several weeks. Uh, But Reason the second, British Vogue released a Facebook chatbot for its readers to use as a new way of keeping up with the volume of news being generated by something as big as Fashion Week. So one evening this week, I went to meet the man in charge of this at Vogue, Condé Nast International's director of product, Cantlin Ashrawan, himself a programmer, he tells me too, to find out how it was made, how it works, and what the company has learned as a result. My name is Cantlin Ashrawan. I'm director of product at Condé Nast International. And I have a terrible, terrible cold, so I apologise for sounding a bit like a frog in a tumble dryer. We've been talking about the um, the Vogue, the chatbot, as part of Fashion Week. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, firstly, what it does? What was it designed to do? I mean, the, the design goal really is to give people uh, that up-to-the-second coverage that you want during fashion season of uh, the catwalk shows which are happening every day. We cover 
400, 450 shows uh, every season, so over a thousand shows a year. Um, and as a fashion fan, you know, I've got my brands that I love, I've got my individual uh, taste, and I'm not looking for a broadcast experience. I just want the things that are relevant to me. And so the bot gives you a really easy way of just saying, hey, you know what? Give me everything you got about Gucci as soon as it happens. You can get to it from uh, our Facebook page. So go to British Vogue on Facebook. Uh, you can also add it directly in the Messenger app if you just uh, type in British Vogue. Um, once you get in there, um, it's going to ask you what you want and you're going to tell it. So it'll give you, um, you know, kind of the latest top stories from British Vogue um, that are appearing on the website there. There's a curated feed by the editorial team there. So it's specific to, you know, what we think is going to work for you as a, a Messenger customer. Um, and then it'll ask you what brands you're interested in. You can, you know, tell it whatever you want. If you're a Prada, Fendi, Gucci, whatever you like. Burberry probably being uh, uh, London. Um, and then every time there's a, a new show lands, we will ping your phone very unobtrusively and let you know. Some of that sounds a little bit like Twitter. So I'm curious to why the decision was to make a Facebook bot for Vogue as opposed to say Twitter service, for example. So instant messaging is a fascination, I mean, it's a personal fascination of mine, and it's a fascination for us as a company. Um, being as, as global as we are, it's really interesting as you, as you travel around to different places, you find you're communicating with people in different ways. So when I'm in Russia, I have to use Telegram to talk to my colleagues. Uh, when I'm in Japan, I have to use Line. Um, and when I'm in China, of course, I have to use WeChat. And WeChat is becoming far more than an instant messaging system. I mean, it is an operating system. Um, and you know, Chinese consumers live their life on this thing. And that's really where Facebook are pushing, pushing Messenger. So they're adding more and more features to the platform to uh, you know, kind of compete with uh, that Eastern use case. They're a really interesting platform. They're huge by reach, of course. Um, we're lucky enough, British Vogue specifically, is lucky enough to have a really great following on Facebook. Um, and it just felt like Fashion Month, it just all, the stars kind of aligned for us. So. And can you tell us a little bit about how long this took to develop or how many people are involved? You know, what sort of a, what sort of a lift is creating something like this? So this is the brainchild of uh, Jackie Ma, who is our head of interactive journalism. Uh, she's, she's amazing, um, ex-BBC and New York Times, uh, and one of the kind of members of our platform partnerships team, a guy called Tom, Tom Conway. Um, and these guys, I, I mean, I, I, I cannot believe how quickly they put this thing together from, from, from concept through to, to, um, to production. They worked really, really closely with a, lots of the editorial team at, over at uh, Vogue House, um, getting their kind of by-the-hour feedback on what kind of things they wanted it to do. Um, two weeks is the answer, two weeks. Um, and that really speaks for the very high quality of, of sort of structured data that we have about the fashion industry already. It's actually, we've got a lot of building blocks there that you can quite quickly plug something into and go and uh, ship an experiment. I see our, uh, a lot of our value as media companies in kind of curating this expert knowledge of the world. Um, and you look at different brands, you've got different domains there, but clearly in the domain of Vogue, uh, you know, every brand, every show, every designer, you know, the hair, the makeup, the beauty, everything um, is captured by us. And it's something we're looking at now is, you know, how do we leverage that data to create really incredible consumer experiences? Tell us about challenges. I'm curious if you had to pick the biggest challenge or one of the top three biggest challenges, just to make it a little easier on you. Um, what might you pick out as that that large challenge in creating this? So the user interface is, is, is tricky. Conversational UI is something that we're not very good at yet as a technology community. It's, it's a pretty new paradigm. Um, and we're not entirely clear on how users want to interact with you know, a conversational uh, UI. Um, 
in, within Messenger, you can do lots of stuff that, you know, you can pre-configure options and give people buttons to tap and all of that kind of good stuff. Um, but when it comes to actually processing natural language, I think with a, with a longer time span than two weeks, uh, we could definitely have got very involved in that. And it's a very, very interesting space. We do have a team working on it. Um, so natural language processing is, is very interesting to us. But, you know, given the timescales at play at the moment, she'll understand Gucci. That's about the end of it. I mean, I presume the, the privacy side of Facebook means that you're not able to sort of sit looking at the conversations people are having. But do you get any sense of the kinds of language or questions that people are asking the, the system to deliver answers for? I mean, the, I think the dominant use case at the moment is um, runway coverage or catwalk coverage. Um, although we don't know what exactly people are talking about, we do know which features are getting triggered and when people are clicking back to the site and all that kind of good stuff. So um, a massive part of experiments like this is... Um, trying to understand the audience, what do they want, taking steps, um, so that the next time we do this, and hey, that could well be Twitter, or it could be Line, it could be whatever else, um, you know, that's in, informed by this experiment. I, I guess that is one of the goals then, is ultimately to, to be driving people back to your, your primary destination, your, your website. It's not, it's not a pure branding experience or branding exercise. You know, on-site engagement is valuable, so is off-site engagement. Um, the... The, the focus with this, with Vogue coming to uh, the Messenger platform, was to show people a new way of experiencing Vogue that would be interesting to them and, and for us to experiment and, and look at how well this was working. So, you know, on-site interaction is, is not the driving focus because I'm really just interested in engagement overall. Um, and, and equally, although people talk a lot about the, the difficulties of monetizing off-platform engagement, um, again, if you look at the Chinese example, you know, WeChat is a significant revenue stream um, for, for our company there. Um, and, and so we look at all of these channels with you know, a commercial hat on, editorial hat on, user engagement hat on. And do you expect to be able to add functionality to this system or is it something that will sort of exist for this period of time but then ultimately be replaced or usurped by a, a smarter, bigger, brighter bot in the next, the next season? You know, we have an obligation to our users, and we will will um, make sure this thing runs into uh, for as long as it's useful to people. Um, but ultimately, the proof is in: hey, did did users really enjoy this? Did customers really enjoy this? And for as long as customers are enjoying it and telling us they're enjoying it, we'll pour more more resources into it. If you were starting this process again from scratch, what's the one thing that you've learnt that might help you make a different decision? when doing this over? You know, is there something you, you've learned during this process that made you think, wow, we, yeah, we, we would do that differently because we've learned X, Y, Z? Uh, the Facebook SDK is a real pain in the ass to work with. <laughs> I'd say that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the features that gets people excited is, um, is that the Vogue editors can, in addition to all the interactivity you can do within the bot, the editors can also just send you a message, right? They can just, they can broadcast a message. If they think something's really important, the editors can go and send that out. Um, and we built a little dashboard for them to do that. Um, but what, what, what that kind of thing comes from is Jackie, who's an incredibly experienced interactive developer, you know, literally sitting by the editors and kind of going, how can we make this work for British Vogue? And what do you want from the system? And so it's, it's maybe not a lesson. It's just something I feel smug about is, you know, if you've got someone like Jackie on the team and she can just sit with um, the editors, really work very, very closely with them, then the, the product always comes out better. So for something like this, the goal really is you, you want to embed editorial with, with tech and that's what's going to deliver the, the, this or, or better products in future. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, the whole history of um, technology and media companies has been getting slowly, you know, almost painstakingly, but slowly closer and closer and closer to editorial. Uh, and not forgetting commercial either. You know, there's 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 three three um, legs to this stool. It's a Bermuda Triangle. Yes, it's a Bermuda Triangle of, of uh, synergy. Um, my, my least favorite word, but it's it's pretty apt in this case. Yeah, I mean, the, cl the closer people are working together across functions, the better things happen. And I think as technologists, as product people, as software engineers, you know, we do not have the deep understanding of the DNA of a 125-year-old brand like Vogue. Uh, you know, you, 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 or 100 years in the case of the UK. Um, you, you can't get that quickly. So, so what are you going to do? You embed people in the company for 10 years before you let them work on anything, or you work really, really closely with the kind of brand guardians. Right, in. it's time to get deep. Deep in tech, what I call DIT. Uh, why do you call it that? Because it stands for deep in tech. <laughs> do you recognise this sound? What about this sound? Yes, they're the sounds of pages going off. Now, these little beepers, the best friend of uh, doctors and physicians for decades, were in the news this week when it was reported that Vodafone was selling its beeper business to Capita, which operates another pager business that it acquired a few years ago. And this results in Capita being Britain's last remaining pager operator. Now, the news was significant in that Vodafone was itself the last remaining British telco to still run a pager network. It actually only had about a thousand customers. That's as recent as, well, this week in 2017. Orange and O2 shut its pager business down well over a decade ago. But it meant I had to ask myself some very serious questions, which I did in front of a mirror, just to make sure I was being very honest with myself. Who still uses pages? I asked myself. Why do they still use pages? Uh, anyway, I discovered that there are some very good reasons to still use a pager. One, batteries last for a long time. Two, they're cheap to run. Three, they're super reliable, apparently, for short bursts of data even still. Four, their networks may reach into places cellular, cellular signals do not. The list goes on. Now, services that still use pages in the UK include the NHS, perhaps obviously, since the inception of pages in the 1950s, I think. In America, they've been kind of a backbone for, for medics, in addition, in addition, of course, to the backbone that medics have supports their skeleton. Uh, they're used by fire brigades here. They're used by, used by lifeboat operators. They're used by bus drivers on long journeys across rural Britain. London's Transport Authority, TfL still uses some pages, according to uh, one write-up that I saw this week. But my absolute favourite use for a pager, Ian, and this is this is where I want to steer this conversation because I, I, I wanted to nerd out on pages a little bit. My favourite use for a pager is bird-watching. Uh, what? They use pages to instantly hear about rare bird sightings across Britain. Rare bird sightings. Now, I saw this mentioned in a Guardian story this week, and I thought... I simply must Google this immediately. So I did Google that immediately to find out what pages are doing with bird watchers. And I found that there's a decades-old service called, fittingly enough, Rare Bird Alert. It's ironic, I suppose, given the bird angle. They, they don't use Twitter and tweet news about rare birds and their associated rare tweets. But anyway, Rare Bird Alert describes itself as, quote, the longest-running instant bird news service in the UK. 
It says, quote, our team of experienced and dedicated birders check and send reports as soon as they break. 16 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They continue... We offer the most comprehensive range of bird news services to suit all birders. If rarity hunting is your thing, just like to bird locally or only go birding occasionally. <laughs> Love this yeah. word. We have a solution to meet your needs. Now, apart from the sheer wonderful beauty of the use of the term bird as a verb, the site does detail its pager subscription service uh, as still the ultimate tool for birders in the field who don't want to miss news. And they talk about the unrivaled reception, the flexibility of getting news alerts when you want, and a range of other features to do with pages. And I just thought, how beautiful that in 2017, a service that's basically 70 years old as a technology nearly is still being used. And the reason it's still being used is because people want to find information about animals. And I just think that's delightful, Ian. So I, I prepared my little monologue there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's lovely. I um, I it's made me want a pager. Why do I want a pager now? All of a sudden, I think the reason that you want a, a pager so much is because they're incredibly cool. They're they're a bit retro. We're in this era of wanting to regenerate some of our favorite tech from the 1990s and pages were i mean millions of people used pages in the 1990s it was all the rage to use a pager back then yeah and so when i was uh, when i started at university my friend uh, bought a pager and so this was back in i guess it was about oh it's before 2000 um and I, I, when I went to university, it, it, the, all we had for co- calling home was uh, a, a payphone in the in the lobby of the halls, and it was just there was no privacy. It was really bad. Um, so I sort of looked into it and discovered that a, a mobile phone, even back then, wasn't actually as impractical as I had thought. So I sort of got one. My friend bought a pager, <laughs> and he had it. I think maybe for a couple of weeks before realizing that. A pager is only really any good if anyone wants to page you on it. Uh, and no one did. So you got a mobile phone. Uh, so even back then, pages were sort of second fiddle. Like the idea of messaging was good. And my first phone didn't have uh, the ability to send text messages. I could only receive them. Uh, so, uh, you know, messaging was just not a thing back then. It was, it was sort of exciting then and it's kind of exciting now. But I, I suspect if I was forced to use one, I might be less enthused by it. I don't know doctors do. Because uh, someone tweeted us, didn't they, and said, oh, yeah, I still get woken up by pages because, you know, I'm married to a doctor or something of that ilk. <laughs> we, we did. And we we had somebody else who, who messaged us and, as well um, from the US where pages are still still in use. And, and they said, you know, one of the advantages for them over there is that they are cheap. But also they um, they pay a license fee for the spectrum and the hardware is a one off cost uh, and they don't have to operate and own their own antennas or go through a cellular a cellular network. So it's basically just a very stripped down bare bones way of getting messages across that, that isn't going to be interfered with by, you know, um, too many people using a, a mobile network. Well, yeah, and you've got to remember as well that in a, in a country like the US, it's a, such a massive stretch of land that uh, having a, a network that's provided by satellite is a lot you know, more practical yeah. uh, for getting messages to people who are out and about. So, yeah, it's great for that. Here, it's less of a problem to provide cell service up and down the country, is it? Yeah, I'm not sure if I misspoke before, but I, I meant to say they, you know, they 
this hospital does own their own um, their own antenna. So they have an antenna on the roof of the hospital that sends a message out to pagers. So right. one of the problems they had is when a doctor moved away, he wanted to take his pager, but they couldn't find an operator to actually give him a pager because they owned and operated it and paid the license fee themselves. So that's that's another way that, that pagers are still being used. But that's going to do it for our talk about pagers this week. I just didn't want to let that fly. That wasn't a deliberate pun, but it is one I'm proud of uh, without talking about it because the connection between pagers and bird watchers uh, is just too wonderful uh let us know any thoughts you have podcast at natelangson.com particularly if you're still using a pager love to hear from you ian let's talk very quickly about amazon's fire tv stick because it's bringing the voice assistant uh which goes by another name i will not use to British television screens. I know this is something that uh, somebody tweeted at us, Alex, I believe it was, on Twitter. He, he asked and said, this is interesting uh, to see Alexa... Oh, damn, I said it. I'm sorry. Untethered from her own hardware. And I agree. And Ian, I think you're you're moderately excited by this too, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And look, so I think that for a voice assistant, really the key is sort of ubiquity and availability. Um, so... You know, one of the reasons I don't use Siri a huge amount is that there's no hardware solution in my home that enables me to sort of just, you know, I mean, obviously, Siri is quite a low grade AI. I think that will improve this year. Um, But the idea of having something like the Amazon product is... um, is is great because it sits there, it's on, it's always listening. Um, although some people don't like that, um, and you can control things. I like the idea of having the Fire TV stick with Alexa because it gives you another way to control. It. You, if you're not quite close enough to Alexa, you can pick up the remote. Mate, you've uh, said that woman's oh, name twice now. People sorry. are going to be cursing us. Sorry, you you, you can beep it. Well, this new Fire TV stick is going to cost forty quid. It's on pre-order now. It's going to be released in uh, in April, and it's going to do a lot of stuff that the that the Echo can do in terms of things like checking commutes and weather and answering questions, controlling smart home devices and, and, and so forth. So it's a relatively affordable way to get the system into your home if you don't have a Echo. And in addition, you get to use a lot of the Amazon products that, that comes with something like a Fire TV. So I think a lot of people will be quite excited by this. It's, uh, it's certainly a very reasonably priced. Quick uh, jump into the feedback bag. We had a, a note coming from Jamie that uh, did prompt me to want to make a little bit of an apology. Uh, Jamie wrote in to say, Nate, doubtless you've had a lot of these, but Ireland is not part of the UK. Hasn't been for nearly 100 years now. I'm English, so don't take much offence, but the Irish quite understandably do. Having said that, it is nice to have Irish tech news occasionally, but try to remember we are not part of the UK. Now, that's because of last week's episode when I said that I was making effort to read more uh, news articles and publications from Ireland and Scotland and Wales and, and basically things outside of just what concerns London and England. And I think the way that I may have worded that was uh, it came across as thinking all of Ireland, Ireland and Northern Ireland, that is, uh, a part of the UK. Uh, so apologies if that is uh, how it came across. Really, what it was is at the moment, there's a risk when you're talking about technology news that when you say we care about the UK and, and how you know the Britain relates to the rest of the world, uh, it's easy to just have that mean London and England. And that's not what I want. I want to pay attention to Ireland and Northern Ireland and Wales and Scotland and England so we can have a complete picture and uh, and not and not be the 
you know the the show that people say well they say they care about uk but if you're outside the m25 they're irrelevant to you um so uh, apologies for that but hopefully the uh, hopefully the the meaning underneath that was uh, was still conveyed uh, a question they're interested in is what's going to happen to data after brexit will the uk insist on uk citizens data being hosted in the uk and i thought about this over a bacon sandwich earlier and it's possible companies like microsoft and amazon are building data centers in the uk to make problems like that easily or more easily solvable but really we we, we won't know for some time we can guess um in as much as in order to break out of the uk in the uh, in in order to break out of the eu within two years we'll have to adopt many eu laws as our own basically copy them verbatim so storing everyone's and, and storing everyone's data in their local country is not mandated on a you know by the eu on a country by country level so i think it's unlikely we'll impose such a demand on telcos and internet companies in the uk um but it will be something that somebody will at some point demand and somebody will therefore have to debate so we will keep our eye peeled on that we also had quite a few tweets and things come in this week um one thing from steven uh he says you know he's got thoughts about why he no longer has his amazon echo turned on he thinks talking out loud to an inanimate object is unnatural which i suppose is similar to a little bit to what you were saying earlier ian well it is it is unnatural um but a lot of things are unnatural like you know looking at a glowing display that conveys information is sort of unnatural it's just whether or not you feel comfortable doing it really and obviously some people just won't like and i i completely get that i i don't use uh, voice assistants on phones when i'm out and about most people probably don't um but at home i don't mind Mm. Uh, Stephen, along with uh, Mike, uh, also asked about the Nintendo Switch. And in fact, Mike said that he loves the idea of a desktop PC based on the Nintendo Switch tech, i.e. a tablet docked into a monitor in order to power um, a gaming PC. And it did remind me of the old... Do you remember the old Motorola Atrix? Yeah, love that phone. Yeah, it was a phone that you could dock and connect the dock to a TV and it would become a Linux computers and where you could access your files and stuff on the phone and it was not really a model that really took off but now when you look at what's happening with say the ipad being able to mirror stuff to a tv and what microsoft's doing with windows 10 and even a little bit what nintendo's doing with nintendo switch um you sort of think well there are similarities at least in terms of the thought process there yeah exactly i mean i i I sort of feel like because processors are getting more and more powerful uh virtualization is is going to be uh, continuing to be a big thing so uh we should we could see some really impressive stuff so thank you for your texts and your emails please keep them coming podcast at natelangson.com or text at text message pod on the twitters that's what we've got in our bag for this week but let's check in with tom Merritt uh, of daily tech news show for what's been going on in the global tech scene this week Thanks, Nate. This week we tell you why you shouldn't be panicked by the Cloudflare leak, but you might want to change some passwords, and you should definitely turn on two-factor authentication. We also discuss why virtual personal assistants may move us into the post-app era, get a good look at the Fabric blockchain system, and discuss what makes people extra furious at Uber. All that and more at dailytechnewsshow.com. Back to you, Nate. That's it, Ian. We're done. Awesome. We're done. I I think I feel like um, my cold might have made me slightly incoherent but I, I still enjoyed the discussion well you can support us if you wish and support ian's cold yeah i've got by... i've got to keep buying uh, pills and stuff 
Yes, by visiting patreon.com forward slash UK tech. Links are in the show notes. They're in the MP3. They're on our Twitter. They're on the website. If you wish to access our longer format show, get our columns, our exclusive stuff that we're doing and be part of that community and know that you're supporting us uh, on a very real um, and and, um, frankly, extremely large uh, way it makes uh, it's making a huge difference to how we're, we're thinking about the show so uh, any support you can you can give us would be amazing and uh, you'll get a whole hell of a lot in return as well on top of uh, the regular the regular show so thank you to our patrons and uh, we'll see you next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.